what's been so beautiful to see is how protests in different countries have been giving advice using Twitter and using Instagram to protesters in other countries in order to make sure that the advice of being safe while at the protest physically, but also digitally is something that's shared amongst all people who, who seek to liberate against any form of oppression. Welcome to today's Rightcast, where we'll be talking about how lessons learned from open source human rights investigations can help to protect protesters and to ensure freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. I'm delighted to be joined by Lina Basuni, Rachel Cornejo, and Shakiba Mashayeki, who, along with colleagues, have created a new organization, Open Source Researchers of the Diaspora, and have produced a guide on protesting more safely in a digital environment. Um, so thank you all very much for, for taking the time. Um, perhaps you could introduce yourselves and describe where you come at the issues from and kind of what inspired you to engage in this way. Sure, I'll go ahead and begin. My name is Lena Basuni. Thank you so much, Dara, for having us on here and for making the space for us to have this conversation. Yeah, I met these lovely uh, folks over at the HRC, the Human Rights Center Lab at UC Berkeley's School of Law around two years ago. And uh, I've been working as an open source investigator and now I'm getting my master's in human rights law at SOAS. So I'll just pass off the baton to Shakiba. Hello, my name is Shakiba and thank you so much, Dara, for having us and for providing us a place to collaborate with you directly. As Lena was saying, I think one of the most meaningful parts of my trajectories at Berkeley was working as a project manager for a couple of years at the Investigations Lab um, because I had the honor at that place to meet Lena, Rachel, Diana, Michael and Hisela. Um, our whole collective. And I think we instantly connected. And that was because each and every one of us carried a diverse, deep um, history and background and memories. And we met in a, in a work for digital space that transcended borders, but was very much informed by the lived experiences of those on the ground in the various countries we researched in. I'll pass it on to Rachel. Hello, I'm Rachel. Um, thank you so much for having us on here. It's so fun to talk about your work rather than writing up another document <laughs> that explains what you're doing. Yeah, so this is exciting. I am Rachel. I, like Shakiba and Lena, worked at the Human Rights Investigations Lab at Berkeley Law, um, leading teams of OSINT investigators investigating human rights issues. And then that led me, so I'm primarily a cybersecurity researcher, um, and OSINT kind of led me there because I started kind of, you know, being responsible for teaching the teams about cybersecurity. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, I need to go educate myself on this. Um, so now I work a lot with the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity at Berkeley. And I do a lot of kind of public interest cybersecurity research, cybersecurity for politically vulnerable nonprofits, trainings, things like that. So I think that there's a really great overlap and it was really great to bring that knowledge to the Protester Privacy Guide. Brilliant. Yeah, Prof. Alexa Koenig and the lab at Berkeley, I think, are probably our main inspiration for the work we do. So it's good to see you all and continuing the, the good work there. And maybe you could then describe kind of why you decided to create the collective and what you hope to achieve with it. The collective came about really organically. About a year ago, I was having a conversation with Michael Elsinati, who's one of our collective members, and he's a researcher now at the Syrian Archive. And I was kind of discussing with him what the landscape of open source investigators look like. Who's doing the research? How are the narratives being written? Are the folks that are being studied uh, being objectified? How do we ensure that folks who are risking their lives to produce citizen media are being witnessed and preserved through the channels that open source will take you through? So, you know, we were discussing how this is a predominantly white and male space. 
and you know we're dealing with issues of gamification and you know the lone wolves of open source the kids who stay on 4chan and find you know the gnarliest of material to then go and publish but what we wanted to do and especially for me my relationship to open source investigation kind of began in 2011 during the arab spring i remember sitting in my living room with my family and i would watch my father just scroll up and down on facebook trying to see if anybody that he knew had passed or had joined the revolution so it became a very it was a very visceral experience for him and the rest of our family and in the way that facebook could potentially empower us to be connected on the ground to ensure that we were doing our work for the liberation of our people but so when we decided to gather together as the open source researchers of diaspora we decided that what we wanted to do was uh work on our ethical responsibility to be conscious of you know not only of our power and positionality but the way that we were preserving the truth that was being revealed in these investigations and how we could hold diverse pluralities of truth and instead construct a collective which built a platform to amplify communities voices and i think that's what we're trying to do right now you know we're not trying to take space we're not trying to profit off of this revolution or anything like that but rather you know be partners in liberation and really ensure that folks have the resources that they need and that we can support people in their journey to liberating documenting preserving and archiving their stories and their experiences and that's how Ozrod came about so we were amidst the pandemic and as protests against police brutality began to take root we increasingly noticed the transformation of social media platforms such as Instagram and TikTok where users especially leaders and organizers within the black and brown communities were sharing vital information on how people can keep themselves physically safe while attending the protests as we were amplifying the posts and sharing them amongst our networks our friends began reaching out looking for guides on digital safety and i quickly reached out to lena asking if she knew of any guides that had consolidated the resources emerging from the black community and included the work of organizations like witness and we realized that that collaboration hadn't yet formed And so she immediately responded to me and she said let's make one. Um so then we reached out to our friends like Rachel and everyone else within the collective from our lab and Lena's idea of a collective uh, with a clear ethical mandate um one which is representative of the communities our research involves in and one which was created to become a partner in to communities in their liberation came to fruition. And I think a manifestation of that um is the protester safety guideline and we're thankful to Sam Dubberly from Amnesty who not only gave us the platform to elevate these resources but shared it widely among his networks and also ours. maybe you could describe a bit the process about about making the guide you know how you approached it it's not a straightforward issue i guess yeah that's a good question um when the collective came together and we began trying to develop a guide what we were mainly trying to do is center black made resources because ultimately the goal was to make accessible this type of document for communities that were most vulnerable a and also to make it more accessible to any community that wanted to use this information and so in that process we realized that there's a wealth of knowledge on the ground by grassroots organizations and leaders in addition to the research and work of organizations like witness but also the expertise that we had gained from our trainings at the human rights lab and also trainings from Sam Dubberly so then we wanted to gather all of these together and consolidate them into one document and so we added our own expertise as open source investigators and we designed a model for how to engage ethically in protests in such a way that people are able to read the document and have practical tips on how to keep themselves physically safe digitally safe in order to continue the movement and the revolution 
Brilliant. And how did you come up with the, the topics that are kind of the, the main planks, I guess, of, of the guide? We kind of started thinking through, okay, like it's kind of split into an online section. The guide is split into an online section that talks about um, communication and planning before you attend a protest or while you're organizing Mm -hmm. and then kind of phone safety once you get there and like the social media and search engine privacy that you probably want while you're at the protest and also potentially beforehand um, and then gets into after you go to the protest and potentially take photos and videos, how do you archive them? So that's kind of our whole online at the protest section. And then we kind of have an offline section as well, that's physical privacy. And so that talks more about, you know, how to dress, what to bring, et cetera. Um, And also has a section on obscuring facial recognition. And that's its own separate section because recognition techniques have gotten a lot of attention recently, I think, in the media. And we saw kind of a lot of information on them. So we included that. And I think something really cool about the guide, too, is that these topics kind of came from everything we were seeing on our social media, right? Like our friends who are on Instagram regularly and they're like, I don't know how much time everyone who's listening to this spends on Instagram, but everyone has started posting these really awesome kind of, there'll be a few Instagram slides long and it'll be kind of like a toolkit on like how to secure your phone for a protest or like a toolkit on like how to evade facial recognition. So we kind of looked at a lot of the topics that we were seeing reposted about a lot and said, okay, where are all the black made and other resources on this? Where is our knowledge on this? You know, how can we combine everything we know? And so I think a lot of what we did was either to demystify or consolidate information that we saw like five different versions of floating around Instagram, but we wanted to put it all in one central place. And I think it was really great too, just making the guide in that it was collaborative, right? Like we all kind of started writing on this document and then kind of figured out the structure and organized it in addition. Yeah, and we make a big point, too, at the bottom to link to other sources where there's more great information about where you can go more into detail and, like, nerd out about some of this stuff and learn more. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. This is a question I should have probably have asked earlier on, but I guess a motivation of the guide, presumably, is that people are quite worried about police surveillance and the consequences for them. And so is that something that you've experienced yourselves or, you know, that has come up through talking to people and kind of what are the what are the impacts? You know, I, I suppose one of the things I'm really interested in is the dangers of surveillance in terms of repressing protests, you know, restricting people's ability to mobilize and to engage in, in while well, in the democratic process. Yeah. I mean, surveillance is very complicated and I think I don't know if I see, Shakiba may have a different take on this, but I see it as, at least in the US for the most part, I feel like people are going to protest like whether or not they're being safe. Like I don't think certain communities have widespread fears of police surveillance, but I think in the US it's a matter of a lot of people, especially like, you know, people really care about these issues. People are going to be out protesting no matter what for the causes they believe in. And so like, if they're going to do that, how can they do it more safely? That's kind of what I see. But Shakiba, I'd be interested in hearing what you think. Rachel, do you want to really quickly talk about the history of open source as a a mechanism for surveillance? It's very interesting, too, because I think what we do, like the techniques that we use at the lab kind of started like historically as techniques for like the police and other institutions to surveil people. And so I think, yeah, we kind of want to use open source as a method to counter that. Yeah, this is something I'm um, writing my dissertation on. I'm looking at specifically how what we're seeing with open source is really fascinating because it's attempting to co-opt the techniques of control and surveillance typically utilized on marginalized and colonized communities. I'm very critical of surveillance and folks may have different takes on this, but in my opinion, especially coming from a marginalized community, 
surveillance has been used for a long time in order to control and discipline. And so I think the reason why we're seeing, um, like Rachel said, protesters going out on the streets, no matter the circumstances, is not a matter of them just not being concerned about the harm or the risks that come along with that, but the reality that if they don't protest, if they don't flood the streets, the greater harm that's being perpetrated against them will continue. And I think that's something that we see very vividly in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, I don't want to utilize this space in order to speak for BLM. But what I will say is that time and time again, folks have really been emphasizing that there are no other options. There are no other options than to flood the streets, than to begin educating, than to communicate to all folks across the board that we need to be shouting. And I think once we recognize that, and once we recognize that protests are one of our fundamental rights, peaceful protesting at least, we need to be creating the necessary conditions to counter the surveillance which could impede that. So the history of open source, I mean, we can think about the way that the FBI, even most recently as 2014, was surveilling BLM protesters following the Freddie Gray protests. And then most recently in June, uh, I believe BuzzFeed acquired a memorandum that described how the DEA had just been given permission to begin surveilling protesters. And there was another story that just came out about how open source was utilized in order to locate um, somebody who was burning police cars. And it was done through a combination of Etsy and, you know, videos they found online, like something that we would hear in one of our workshops about the crazy ingenuity of researchers mm -hmm. is being also utilized by the FBI. So open source is not something new in any regard. It's just, I think now what communities are doing, especially marginalized communities, ones that aren't necessarily entirely protected by their governments or don't have governments to protect them, is that we are reappropriating surveillance. We are surveilling the surveiller in order to acquire rights which are deemed to us, which are rightfully ours. And so what we wanted to launch from was a, a mechanism of ethics and harm reduction. So we wanted to utilize you know, this tenet of harm reduction in order to enable protesters to keep doing what they're doing whilst releasing information or rather providing educational tools so as to mitigate the harm of protesting. Because if, a, you know, the U.S. doesn't want anybody really on the streets, at least from, you know, the 40 states that have used tear gases against protesters as released by uh, Amnesty International in their report. So that's at least what I would kind of say about the history of open source and why it's so important that we begin magnifying and amplifying the voices of folks who have been doing this work and resisting surveillance and resisting the impediments to protests for so long. Super interesting. I, it's, it's really kind of the double-edged sword, I guess, isn't it? That a lot of the ability to protest or the motivation for protest rather and the ability to hold people to account or at least to try to has come from open source. But at the same time, you can have significant consequences for people because they've been identified, say, as being part of a protest, you know, whether it's through the state and the police or even, you know, in terms of their personal or professional life, just getting that information out there. I think it gets very interesting when you're trying to figure out what the right thing to do for digital security is at a protest, mm -hmm. because I think one of the things we're trying to sort through is there's so many different learned community techniques to escape subvert surveillance and everyone kind of does it a different way. And there's like a lot of arguments over what is safe and what is not. 
And I think the truth is that it's very context specific, right? You need to kind of really think about who you are and what your community is and like what you're worried about and kind of build a strategy for safety and for countering surveillance that works with your community. But that also too is very difficult to do. It's difficult to, you know, understand enough. Like I think people really see surveillance and like see cybersecurity as like these black holes where it's like, you know, you have no idea what to do and people could be watching you from all ends. And so something we really wanted to do too is cut through some of that noise and be like, okay, we are human rights people who have been working in the open source world. We understand how some of this works. We also know that there's lots of people out there with great knowledge. We want to consolidate it. Um, we want to put it back in the hands of the people who really need it most, who isn't the government, who already has a lot of resources, but who somehow a lot of mo modern cybersecurity efforts and digital security efforts, you know, are connected to big corporations, are connected to the government. And so we're kind of trying to sort through all that. Part of the thing we're trying to do too is I think sometimes like there's a lot of really great community knowledge, but there's also kind of not necessarily communication between the people on the cutting lines of technology and then some of the people who are working as activists. And so I think we saw our role somewhat as trying to bridge that like a more direct example as I've been scrolling through a lot of my Instagram and Twitter feeds, right? At the beginning, you were seeing a lot of pictures of protesters' faces. You know, journalists and others take a photo of someone at a protest and like post about it and you can kind of see faces. And, you know, as Lena mentioned, we've seen articles that show like, no, people use OSINT and people use other surveillance methodologies to identify those people and detain them. But that's not something that people would necessarily think about. So in our guide, we kind of say very explicitly, you know, really think hard before you post a picture of someone's face at a protest and think about whether it could put them at risk and think about whether they're already keeping a public profile. So that sort of thing. I think something else that is, you know, quite frightening about the risks involved is, is doxing. Uh, you know, a lot of, I think the best word for them, they're almost like vigilantes on Twitter. You know, they, they find folks who essentially they disagree with whether it's politically or they're protesting, but they use also open source techniques in order to gather all of their information and then make it public. And we've seen a lot of people that, you know, have either had their entire reputations, their work, their mm -hmm. livelihoods destroyed through this. And of course, it's like, it's not necessarily the government that's, you know, perpetrating the surveillance, but it's just other folks using Twitter who have an agenda against a particular protester or a particular movement or however we're going to speak about it. Something else that I found really terrifying was uh, the use of, of stingrays, which are, we we wrote about them briefly in our Amnesty article, but essentially they mimic cell phone towers in order to gather the location of phones in a vicinity. So you can target a particular mobile phone, but all the phones surrounding that particular phone that's targeted, the information can be sent back to whoever is gathering that. I believe uh, the Minnesota Police Department had something like a $2 million deal that was just exposed in a white paper that came out on surveillance with this corporation that produces the Stingray technology. So there's significant investment and in infrastructure into both, you know, something that's more analog and going through and trying to find someone's face and using Etsy and all those alternative modes of finding people's digital footprint. But there's also these really mad technologies, like crazy, like something it's almost dystopic to really try and even wrap your head around that are being used in order to stifle protesters and more importantly, to muffle their voices to ensure that there are more harms for them seeking justice than just staying at home. That's probably a really good segue into then your, your tips in terms of protest safety. So you have top three tips. Maybe you could talk us through how you, how you came up with them, I guess, and, and what they are, you know, what people should do. 
one of the tips that uh, we recommend both in our guide and we wanted to emphasize here was that online and before any individual attends a protest, we highly recommend that they download Signal for encrypted communication between them and their friends, family members, anyone. And also to download VPNs like Proton, which are free and accessible before they begin to attend the protest and to use them. And to also not publicly post about or respond to Facebook event pages that say that they will be in this location at the specific time just to maintain their identity, their family's identity, um, and to protect against anyone who, as Lena was saying, is either trying to dox them or by the government that's ultimately trying to gather information from their attendance. Just a quick follow-up question on that. Do you think that people should create kind of alternate profiles or social media presences if they're going to be engaged in activity or in protest, sorry? I would say yes, but that could be as simple as creating another email address, one that's not related to any of your school or work information. That could mean having a particular alias that you utilize to sign up for events so that your identity is not linked to any protests. So you don't leave a digital footprint. It's that sort of thing. It's not so necessarily to like create sock puppets in order to get information that they're not supposed to have access to, but rather to ensure that we are taking care in our digital footprint and our physical footprint and allowing ourselves to do what we need to do in the physical in order to achieve whatever liberation we desire or that we should have. Um, so my short answer is yes, but I'm, I'm sure Rachel can expand upon it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to start a little bit with saying what I said before, which is, you know, security is very contextual and what you want to do always is going to depend on like your specific context and like your specific need. And so there's no one answer that's necessarily safe. And I think security too, especially cybersecurity, is a trade-off between what is secure because the most secure thing to do is going to be pretty complicated, probably technically and stuff versus like what people are actually going to do in their daily lives. And so I think in your daily life, it's pretty easy to, as Lena said, create a separate email address and accounts that you use to sign up for events. Because, you know, if I am an alt-right, you know, supremacist and I really easily want to like make people's, I'm going to look at the who's going list on a Facebook event and I'm going to repost that all, all that information to the dark web. And then all my friends are going to like, you know, get on the dark web or get on that forum and then start sending, you know, bad messages to those people. So I know something a lot of people do too at protests, which is not in our guide, but is super useful, is kind of temporarily disabling your social media account. If you know you're going to be protesting for a certain amount of time or doing an action, you will hide all your past posts on your Facebook and stuff like that. Lock everything down completely for a period of a few days or like up to a month. And then you'll bring it back later. And that's kind of a separate um, way of doing things from creating a whole separate account. That being said, though, I think say you're a professional and you don't want to get your political work involved with the work you're doing professionally, then like, yes, you would mm -hmm. want to create kind of a separate Twitter potentially, you know, like for your activism, which doesn't link back to your identity. So I think it's really context specific, but I think people should definitely be thinking more outside the box in terms of, okay, how am I setting up my digital presence? And like, how am I making sure these different streams don't cross? And how am I making sure people can't find me? So hopefully this gives an idea of kind of how complicated it is, but also what things people can do to offset that um, and make security really doable and really easy, because that's the ultimate goal, right? So you kind of talked about before the protest activities, but you also have tips for at the protest and after afterwards. Maybe you could talk through those a little bit. Yeah, I would recommend turning your phone on airplane mode so that it's not connected to any cell signal towers, which can mitigate the impact of Stingray technology. It'll also prevent you from, for example, joining a 
public Wi-Fi network, which could be used to take information without your consent or without your informed consent, rather. And it can exactly really just prevent, you know, the, the, the surveillance of stingrays. I would also recommend covering your face, wearing non-identifiable clothing, covering your, if you have any tattoos, piercings, these sort of items that folks look for when they're investigating. I remember one time I was looking at airstrikes in, in Yemen, and we were able to verify and locate a particular person who was in a video because they were the only person wearing like a pink shawl in several videos. And this pink shawl was the identifying variable that allowed us to corroborate several you know, distinct pieces of evidence and, and audiovisual content. And this is the same thing that folks are using in protests. So I think that folks need to be keeping in mind that a big tenant of, of protesting is that the sum of the whole is greater than the parts. Forgive me for my poor metaphor, but what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to elucidate upon is the way the impact of protests, particularly when we act as a collective, you know, similar to the, the idea behind creating this collective, was being able to create and amplify voices which seek the liberation for all people. And I think that that's kind of the most hopeful tenant of the protests that we're seeing right now, is that we're gathering in the name of something and that we recognize that we're not free until we're all free. And so when we kind of shed these identifying characteristics, they're both protecting us and protecting the movement. They're protecting our right to protest whilst protecting our individual safety. And so I think that's quite extraordinary about cybersecurity, about physical security, is the way that we can reduce harm whilst ethically encouraging folks to get down to the streets. If I can just jump on what Lena was beautifully saying um, before we get into the other tips, is that I think one thing that's so unique about this guide is that it's taking place amidst amidst a, a pandemic and also U.S. protests that are so large, but also against amidst global protests. So a few months ago, a lot of us were investigating protests that were happening in Hong Kong, in Sudan, Haiti, Chile, Palestine. And I think what's been so beautiful to see is how protests in different countries have been giving advice using Twitter and using Instagram to protesters in other countries in order to make sure that the advice of being safe while at the protest physically but also digitally is something that's shared amongst all people who, who seek to liberate against any form of oppression. And so it's really unique because you, you have individuals who were protesting in the Hong Kong protests creating an entire guide, a visual guide on here's what to do if you encounter tear gas. Here's how you can, with ordinary objects, limit its harm. So I think it's it's just been really amazing to both see it and also be able to consolidate all of these, all of this amazing and collective knowledge into one document. And I hope that in addition to the digital safety, which we talked a little bit about here, um, the, the physical part of it is just as important, I think. And I just wanted to emphasize that. But I'm going to pass it to Rachel for the other two. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to talk a little bit about physical safety specifically with regard to facial recognition once again, because I think facial recognition, at least in the circles I run in, has been getting a lot of kind of attention recently. And so for people who don't know, facial recognition is basically the idea that there's software like artificial intelligence software that can take a video, like a surveillance video of an event or something and identify human faces in it, which they can use to match up to other human faces in databases or like match up to faces in other videos and kind of figure out where you were and who you are. 
So that's obviously pretty terrifying. And police departments have definitely been using it. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, various information floating around about how best to evade facial recognition. And it was really interesting, you know, on the guide trying to parse through that information because some people are saying, okay, like you want to paint, you know, one side of your face one color and one side of your face a different color and then like make your nose and eyebrows not symmetrical in order to throw it off so it can't tell there's a face versus other sources are saying, no, that advice doesn't make any sense. What you actually want to do is just like cover your entire face with kind of a black cloth because if you're painting it different colors, then sure you've avoided the risk of the AI reading your face. But what about all the um, government workers who are then going to look at that footage and just like notice that you're the only person with your face painted Mm -hmm. a different color? So that's why prevailing knowledge and as it says in our guide, prevailing knowledge is just that it's better to cover up your face than look for kind of a crazy high tech solution. But that's an example of kind of A, a technique to avoid surveillance and B, kind of a way that there's like different narratives floating around. And you kind of have to, as I kind of mentioned before, understand there is no ultimate safety. Like maybe one method will make you safer from the AI, but another method won't make you as safe from the people involved. And it brings home the idea of you really need to think about your situation and like what your priority is and what you what kind of surveillance you want to defend against first. You know, because if it really is concerning for you to be in their database more so than, you know, to be recognized by other means, then, you know, maybe you do want to paint your face. So I think that's really important. I did want to quickly mention that in terms of the paint, something else that we found was that because police were frequently using tear gas, it became a, a larger recommendation not to put anything on your face that could run and get into your eyes. So although it was initially deemed as a, a feasible way of, of obscuring that technology, folks found that when you're on the ground and protesting, it could actually hinder your ability to escape really dangerous situations. This is kind of all online and offline, but at the protest, just wanted to add sort of a brief after the protest safety tip. We talked a lot about, or I mentioned this earlier, kind of not posting protesters' faces online. And I think that's really important. And I want to talk a little bit about the ideas of both scrubbing metadata from photos and blurring faces, because I think a lot of knowledge going around right now is oh, you can just like blur someone's face with like a blurring tool and then post the same video and it's fine. But us as open source investigators kind of disagree because a lot of times what we'll do is there's this tool called reverse image search where you can take a photo and then upload it to Google Photos or whatever and you can see all the instances that that photo has been published online. So for example, if you publish a photo and the face is blurred out, but the other photo exists online with the face not blurred out, you can really easily kind of search backwards and find that person. And a lot of people don't know this tool exists. And so they think that they'll find the solution just by blurring something really quickly. Mm. And that's not always the case either. So our recommendation is to either really not post videos with people in them or like even potentially, you know, putting emojis on someone's face or like, you know, changing other things about the background or whatever can help as a package rather than just, you know, using a simple software to blur something out. Similarly, metadata is kind of the collection of all the information that goes along with whatever photo or video you take. So it'll include your name, usually sometimes depending like the name of your device, the make and model of your device, where and when the photo was taken, et cetera, et cetera, which depending again on what your context is, that could be really good. That could be really bad, right? You know, if you want to use this footage later for a legal investigation, maybe you want to keep all the metadata and like store your photo in a secure place so that it doesn't get anywhere crazy and then submit it to some kind of authority who needs that metadata in order to verify the footage. That's great. You know, that's one purpose. You can configure your phone to do that. Another purpose, if you're going public, more public with that image, 
you probably or sending it to someone you may not necessarily trust, you know, not it's not a trusted legal organization, you may want to remove all of that metadata immediately so that no one can kind of identify that you were the one who took the photo or at least has to work way harder to figure out where and when it was taken and therefore will have a lot harder of a time kind of using it to cause harm to the people in the video. And again, there's a lot of information on removing metadata kind of circling around the internet. A lot of it tells you to download additional apps. I'm not a huge fan of that because anytime you download an additional app onto your computer, you're creating an opportunity for any malicious code that exists in that app to enter your computer or your phone. So one thing that we include in the guide is I um, spent a fun half hour figuring out how to remove metadata from photos on my own iPhone without downloading anything. And I found a great article on it and I posted that article in our guide. So there's links to that. But yeah, again, it's really context specific and you kind of need to know like, okay, if I'm going to scrub the metadata, here's the safest way to do it. Or if I want to go legal, here's how to do that. The other idea I wanted to bounce off of Rachel on was, you know, reverse image search, but also the mosaic effect. So it's something like you have a collection of pictures and say most of those pictures, the faces are blurred, but you have a photo from on top of the protesters or in front of the protesters, and you're able to locate, for example, the same jacket that somebody's wearing. And pretty soon what you're able to do is gather a bunch of images, which put together the one image that you're trying to reconstruct. And in doing that, you may be gathering information that somebody who posted the photo was initially attempting to obscure. So this is another reason why we're recommending that folks in general resist posting pictures of themselves or other people at protests. And then in addition to all of those things, if you are taking pictures, ensure that you're saving it to a local place. So that means if you have a hard drive that connects to your computer, don't save it to your cloud because we've all seen what happens when clouds get hacked, you know, and people's personal and private images are leaked along with all their, you know, credit card information and identifying information that can be used alongside that. So if you do take photos and you don't know what you're going to do with them yet, you don't know who to turn them into, then you can go ahead and save them locally and ensure that if you want to preserve the metadata or scrub it at a later time, you can do that. One of the, the really interesting things about what you're saying and the context specific is how at certain times taking a, a counter surveillance measure can just serve to flag you as suspicious that you're trying to hide, but it can't be just putting up a flag to say, look at me. And I think that's a really, really important idea to get across because I think people sometimes have this tendency, and I know I did before I started working in cyber, is like, you know, the more, most technical, most confusing, most like innovative and interesting solution is the safest one. And that's not always true depending on where you are, like if you're in the US and you need to talk to people online and like you need to coordinate movements during a protest, then yeah, maybe Signal may be the app for you because it's, you know, it's encrypted, messages disappear, so on and so forth. Versus, you know, if you're in Palestine or if you're somewhere with a really repressive, like huge surveillance structure and like really repressive government, the mere presence of Signal on your phone may be an indicator that you have something to hide. You know, before you download Signal for a protest, think about whether you even need Signal on your phone in the first place. You know, like if you don't need to get updates on where you're moving, you might not even need it. So I think it's really important to kind of think through that kind of thing. Another good tip too is turning off biometric 
identification on your like unlocking via face scanning or fingerprint on your phone before you go because it's easier for the cops to compel you to do that than to um, compel you to enter a passcode right if you're arrested because they can just kind of like grab your finger and put it on your phone or whatever yeah so it's kind of really thinking through you know okay who could get access to my info will i raise a red flag if i even have implemented any of these measures bottom line there's a lot to know about digital security protester privacy so why we wrote the guide yeah check the guide Those were uh, really good tips, Rachel. And I think what you said is a great place to leave off. And it's like, if there's something on your phone that you don't need that has any identifying information, delete it before you go to the protest. Yeah, that, I think that pretty much sums it up. You know, if you can obviously go private on your Instagram and go private on all the, on your Twitter and go private on your Facebook and uh, remove any identifying information or where you work, or even going private on your LinkedIn you know, take off your name so people don't know where you work and your work history or what you're even involved in, and then delete it from your phone. I think in general, like Rachel said, it's about context. And it's about, you know, of course, there's a level of acceptance that there's always going to be risk involved, and that we're attempting to reduce the harm of that risk. And I think something that's really amazing about these protests, like I've seen in my peers who are investigators, is that we all began with people who were interested in archiving and preservation and documentation. Many of us didn't have a human rights background, an activist background, an organizing background, but what we were interested in was the plurality of truth and the way that we can magnify different dimensions of conflicts and crises and protests and all these sort of things and details that get lost on their way up to larger media organizations. And what can we do to serve that? So I think that's kind of the context that we're departing from and something that we kind of tried to keep in mind in every tip that we wrote, that this is our underlying tenant. This is kind of like our anchor. Uh, how can we reduce harm and amplify voices? And I really want to emphasize, I don't know if I've gotten a chance to say this, but this document would not have come forth or have been possible without the labor and the work of Black folks on the ground of organizers who are consistently risking their life in order to dismantle these oppressive structures, whether it's, you know, the police or the surveilling mechanisms that go along with them. What we really did and what I really want to emphasize is that we consolidated this information, this expertise and this knowledge was floating around on Twitter. And we just wanted to make sure that all folks who needed it could find it, whether they knew how to search, do an advanced search on Twitter whether they knew how to Google right, whether, whether they've been protesting or they're just looking at going to their first protest. We wanted to make sure that this language was accessible, the tips were something that anybody could do, and that folks could reach out to us at any time in order for us to assist in this labor and in this revolution which is being led by Black people. Thank you for listening to this episode of RightsCast from the University of Essex Human Rights Centre. You can subscribe to RightsCast and find more of our episodes on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Please share with your friends and leave us a review if you feel like it. We'll be back soon with more regular episodes.